I'm going to title my message this morning, Decompressing Christ's Second Coming in Malachi. Uh, we're dealing with a prophetic book, and one of the interesting things about prophecy is that many times prophecies will have a very compressed first statement, and then over time in history or through further revelation, those statements get bigger and bigger, decompressed over time. Something that was collapsed all of a sudden begins to expand. And so when you're looking at Malachi, and as we talk about the coming of Christ in the world, like most of the Old Testament, the comings of Christ, two comings, his first coming in incarnation, his second coming in judgment and glory, those two comings in the Old Testament are collapsed into one. So it all looks like it's all one event. You can't really distinguish, oh, first coming, second coming, unless you're looking at it from our side of history, from our side of the coming of Christ. Otherwise, looking forward, the Jewish people could not have understood that Christ was coming in two stages. It's amazing that Malachi, writing 400 years before the coming of Christ, has as much detail as he does, and we know it works itself out as it comes with Christ, with John the Baptist, and other things that are captured in this text. There are three things that I want to, or three questions I would like to provide some answers to, and these three questions for my sermon are this. Who is being rebuked and for what issue? Who or what is coming? And what will the second coming, or what will the coming be like? And the first one is, who is being rebuked and for what issue? If you read the book of Malachi very quickly, you sense that there's a judgment upon the nation Israel. And you might see it sort of collapsed. But if you read it very carefully and you listen carefully, there's sort of a separation, two different layers of judgment that's coming. Father Peter uh, has focused on God's challenge to the nation and their failures to offer proper offerings to God, offering blemished offerings, their broken marriages, their failure to tithe, all the different things that they failed to in their covenantal requirements and responsibilities. But there's also another layer of judgment and warning that's going on in this book. It's not just to the people of Israel. It's first and foremost to the priests of Israel, to the sons of Levi, to the leaders of the people. And what they have done is they have failed to lead and to instruct the people of God in the ways of the Lord. They have not taught, they have not warned, they have not rebuked or challenged God's people. And to a certain extent, they bear a large measure of responsibility for the condition of the people that Malachi is writing to. If you read through the book, uh, you have a sense that God is uh, rebuking the priests. Chapter 1, verse 6, O priests who despise my name. A very strong statement there. 110, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors of the temple. That there would just be one priest who would have enough integrity to shut the doors of the temple and not allow polluted offerings to be offered in my sanctuary. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, it has a very strong command about the priest that God's going to send a curse upon you. You offer blessings, but your blessings are not blessings. They're actual curses because you do not lay it to heart. And then he gives a very strong statement about his covenant that he made with Levi. Listen to this text. It's a beautiful text about what God expected his priest to be like. He said, My covenant with him, with Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave it to them. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no, no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This is a picture of the ideal priest. But you, 
have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. As someone who occupies the role of pastor and priest, I take these words pretty seriously to heart because the rebuke that's there and the condition of the people is very much a result of the priests failing in their obligation to this covenant that God made with Levi. And a little bit later on in time, through these 400 years till finally you arrived at John the Baptist and Jesus, the condition of the priests was not much better. The Levites were still not leading the people and teaching the people and did not even recognize the Messiah who'd come. In 2.17, God says, you've, you've wearied the Lord with your words, teaching false teaching and not preparing the people. And finally, he says, judgment will begin with the priests. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, uh, it talks about the Lord's judgment. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. The focus is upon the leaders. The leaders are judged first, and then the people. So what do you hear from all this? I hear that God holds his leaders accountable. He holds them accountable to lead the people and to give them hard instructions. It's a service of good that we provide to the people when we provide the hard instructions, when we bless the people by telling them the truth, when we prepare them for the presence of the Lord. Father Peter sort of chided last week saying that the uh, uh, strategic uh, uh, plan committee had uh, told him, go ahead and preach on tithing and hell and uh, various things, marriage, divorce, all these things, hard sayings, and see if people stay around, you know, see if we, we keep our people. And you stayed. And he was sort of teasing in that sense. But that's appropriate, right? It's appropriate for us to teach these things that God's people might be prepared and living their lives with integrity before Almighty God. So what is the issue? What were the issues that were before the people? The main issue, I would say, throughout the book is spiritual complacency. Coming to a place where you're just complacent about the things of the Lord. Just don't even care. Don't even regard them. Have no fear before Almighty God. And how does a person get there? How does a person get to a place of spiritual complacency? I have three thoughts on that. Sometimes it's when hopes are disappointed. Sometimes you just feel confused about life. And you don't, things, expectations just aren't fulfilled. And you lose heart. Sometimes promises are delayed. And you sense that God's given you a promise. And it just never comes to pass. And you think about the second coming of Christ. How long has it been since the promise? Weeks, months, years, decades, centuries, millennia? It's like, wow, how long do you have to wait? And then sometimes our commitments are derided in the public square. Sometimes we're mocked and scoffed at for our beliefs, and all of a sudden we lose heart because they aren't necessarily views that people would think are wise or intelligent. And what this results in, the spiritual complacency, are two primary evidences that we see throughout the book. Number one, the people were faithless. They were not faithful to God in the vows that they made, but they were also fearless. Not in the sense of being brave, but in the sense of having no fear of God in their hearts and in their lives. There's a prayer that we pray for the dead, and we pray that people would end their lives in faith and fear. And that's a proper prayer. We want people to live in faith and faithfulness. We want them to live in fear and awe of the God and a sense of wonder about him and honoring in the way he does. And when you, have, you are faithless, you don't exhibit love or obedience or fidelity. And when you're fearless, you do not exhibit reverence or humility or trust. 
Now, the fear of God is a central theme all the way through the book of Malachi. It begins in, in 1.6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if, then if I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, then where is my fear? In 111, he sort of gives the sense of what his mission is in the world. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering. For now my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. The book of Malachi is sort of laid out in the sense of you have a statement, then you have the people asking some questions of God, and then you have a response that the Malachi or God is providing to these, these questions. There's one section that's narrative. It's a section that is sort of telling a story or telling an event. And it's in chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Listen to it. This is about the fear of the Lord. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. After hearing all these rebukes and these challenges, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in, that, in the day when I make up the, my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. What he's really saying in this passage is that what distinguishes God's people from the rest of the world is the fear of God. And when people are living in the fear of God, we see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. We see a distinction between those who love God and serve him and those who don't. And when there's no distinction between us and the people of the world, there's no mission. Our mission doesn't go forth. There's no witness in the world. We don't have anything to bear as far as a witness. And so what we find in this text is a beautiful statement, really, of what God's mission is in the world. He wants his name to be great and to be feared among all the nations, not in the sense of trepidation and fear, but in the sense of awe and reverence toward him, and that incense might be burned in every nation before him. The responsibility for leading the people to be reverent and honoring towards God is laid pretty much in this text at the feet of the priest. And so then God begins to announce his coming. He's going to come into the world. As we begin these last two questions, I want to just give you a sense of a couple of stories, a personal antidote, to give you a feel for attitudes towards coming and uh, ones that will maybe illustrate wrong attitudes, perhaps, towards coming. When I was a young boy, I grew up in a home that was a three-story building. Uh, my father had bought this home when I was five years of age, and the first story was a, a place where he had his business. He had his barber shop and his office, and then the back rooms. He had three billiard uh, pool tables and ping pong table, and so it's a great place for community gatherings and haircuts and whatever. The second and third story of the building had two apartments. We lived in the north apartment. The, the second story, the first story of our apartment, was where we had our main rooms. We had our kitchen, our dining room, our living room, and my parents had their bedroom. And then you come around, you there's a door, you close the door in the winter to keep the heat from being lost from the second story and going up to the third story. We didn't heat the third story where I had my bedroom. And up in those third story, you had uh, four bedrooms up there where we, our kids, we had, had five kids. And uh, so we were up there. On school nights, our parents would uh, send us to bed. They wanted a little bit of break after they're working their jobs and uh, dealing with kids. 
And so they wanted us to go upstairs and quiet down and go to sleep. And they needed that break. And sometimes we would become rowdy. And if we became rowdy, the, the pattern was this. My father would come to the door, open the door if it was closed, and he would yell up the stairs, Now quiet down, or I'm going to come up there with my belt. Now my father had this little thin three-quarter inch leather belt, and uh, it was a, something obviously that held his pants up, but it was also his primary tool of discipline for his children. And so he, uh, he would make that threat, make that warning, and wanted us to know he was not going to uh, fail to do that. Now, I wasn't so foolish to run over to the top of the stairs and yell down and chide at my father. Come on, let's see what you got. Bet you can't catch me. I, I, I didn't do that. I wasn't that foolish. I feared my dad. But there was one night that I remember that <clears throat> we didn't heed his warning. I'm not sure if we didn't believe him or what. We just didn't heed it. We disregarded and still fooled around. Now, as you walk up the stairs in our, to our third story, my bedroom was immediately to the right. And then further down the hallway was my sister's bedroom. Well, I had gone down the hallway to my sister's bedroom, and I was fooling around with her down in her bedroom. And all of a sudden, I heard the door open, and I heard the creaky stairs, my father ascending those creaky stairs. Uh, uh-oh. <laughs> I did what every brilliant child does. I uh, hid under my sister's bed because uh, I, I didn't have time to get back to my own bedroom. So my father gets to the top of the stairs. He looks in my bedroom, and he doesn't see me, so he walks further down the hallway and comes to my sister Sona's bed, and he looks in the uh, bedroom and says, where's Carly? And that was my childhood name, was Carly. Dad was Carl. I'm Carl II, so I was Carly. Where's Carly? And I, I didn't see this, but I know it's true. My sister, in her fear and trembling, went like this. <laughs> He's under my, I didn't hear any words, just under the bed. And so my father walks around, belt in hand, kneels down, looks down, bends over, kneels down, and sees my foot, my leg, grabs me by the leg, lifts me out from under the bed. I was, I was a little bit smaller then than I am now. And that's the end of my memory. <laughs> I don't remember. I imagine I got a licking like I, I probably deserve. But and I don't think he knocked me out, so, but that's the end of my memory. I don't remember receiving the spanking. But what I do know is that I did not respect my father, perhaps, as I should have. And I picture that sort of, be like, sort of like how Israel was with the warnings that were coming in the book of Malachi. I'm going to come. You better prepare yourself. But there was a sense in which the people were not uh, listening to those warnings. They weren't heeding them. They weren't paying attention to the consequences. And God was going to come. Here's the second story. I had some interesting opportunities during my career to work in different places. And after I left Cedarville University, one of the most fascinating jobs I had, just short-lived, it was 10 months, but I was interim academic dean at Payne Theological Seminary in Wilberforce, Ohio. Uh, Payne Theological Seminary was an African Methodist Episcopal seminary, and uh, my learning curve was straight up. Uh, first of all, I hadn't worked at a seminary in administration before, so this was new to me. And I was also uh, uh, in a culture that was uh, 99%, 99% of the students were African-American, and there was one Latina student, but all the rest, there weren't any Caucasian students. And so culturally, both in uh, the, the sense of African-American culture, but also in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, it was just a straight-up learning curve. Sometimes your learning curve's like this, sometimes it's straight up. Mine was straight up during this time. 
AME, African Methodist Episcopal, is a uh, denomination that is Episcopal. They're led by bishops. And the bishops in the AME have authority and power like our, own, our bishops could only dream of <laughs> if they want power <laughs> because they had so much power and authority. Uh, the example would be that uh, many of the presbyters who were pastors over the church, they called them presbyters or priests. We would call them priests. Uh, but the presbyters uh, had fear and trembling whenever they thought of the bishops because the bishops held them accountable for numbers within their churches but also for raising revenue for the diocese. And if they didn't increase the numbers of their parishioners, and if they didn't increase and give a good tithe to the diocese, uh, the bishop's vengeance would come down on them. And many times they would move them from a church that was a nice church, if it wasn't being productive, move them from there and make them travel out to some remote uh, church out in the boondocks. And they feared those days of reporting, how many people do you have? How much money do you have to give? the diocese, and, and if they didn't produce, uh, they, were, they were judged. Now, I was a novice. I didn't understand all of this, and uh, I would go to my office on the second story of Payne Theological Seminary, and I'd do my work. I would, had all these projects lined out before me, and one of my objectives was to make sure that the next academic dean had a, a good situation when they came in the door. Well, one day, I'm working in my office, working on some projects, and this person came running by, rushing by, poked their head in my office and said, the bishops are coming. I'm there. Okay, the bishops are coming. But two or three times during that day, they kept popping their head in my office, the bishops are coming. And I'm there, so? So what? You know, the bishops are coming. And every once in a while, the bishops would choose to come to the, to the seminary. And when they did, everybody was just frantic, getting their ducks in a row, making sure they had every area of their responsibility fully under control and ordered so they could give an account because their jobs would be on the line when the bishops came. And I'm there, so? <laughs> so what? I had no idea. I was just totally ignorant of their power and their authority. And I picture that also as a way that the people of Israel were, just playing ignorant of God's power and God's authority. And so we have two questions that come to us in the book of Malachi regarding the coming of the Lord. Who or what is coming? Now you say that, well, that's obvious. It's pretty easy to answer that. But if you read through Malachi 3, 1 and 2, and then chapter 4, the first three verses, you get a little bit of confusion. It says in verse 1, my messenger is going to come before me. So two persons are mentioned there, right? My messenger is going to come before me. Then it says, the Lord whom you seek will come into his temple. Well, the Lord's going to come. And then it says, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he's going to come. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who can endure the day of his coming? Well, whose coming are we talking about? Is it the messenger or is it the Lord's coming? Or who's, who's coming? And then it says the day is coming. And then to complicate it all, when you get to chapter 4, 4 verse 1, behold, it says, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So now Elijah's coming. And we know Elijah is one of the greatest prophets. He was taken up into heaven, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Malachi stands at the beginning of the, the prophet lists. And he, according to Malachi, is going to be the last prophet, the next prophet that comes before the Lord's coming. And if we know the New Testament very well, look in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10 and verse 14. These passages are fulfilled 
with John the Baptist and John the Baptist's ministry, even though John the Baptist, when asked if he's, he's Elijah, he says, I am not. <laughs> and so confusion reigns. And to add a little bit more to the confusion, uh, Ma- does anybody remember what Father Peter told us that the name Malachi means? It means messenger. It means messenger. So we've got this messenger coming, a messenger who they delight in is coming, Malachi's messenger, Elijah's coming, the Lord's coming. Well, who's coming? And I've seen several theories by commentators about what, how this works and who's coming, and some would say there's two, uh, two announcements of coming. One is a, a succinct statement, the other one unpacks a little bit further. But I'm not sure I'm totally convinced on all that. What I think is we have collapsed teaching, and it will be unfulfilled and expanded as we go through time. And all of a sudden, ah, that makes sense. Ah, that makes sense when you get to those timings as we come to it in the future. So what go, what's going on here is a little bit difficult to determine, in fact, of who is coming. But two things are clear. Number one, the Lord is coming. He is going to come. And that's clear in the text. And the second is, the day is set for his coming. And he will make good on his promises. God has set a day and he will return. What seems like a long delay with no consequences will be swallowed up in the swiftness of his coming. He's coming. And while the details may be confusing, God's intent and purposes are very clear. I see four purposes enlisted in these texts regarding the coming of the Lord. Number one, the messengers, in a sense, will prepare God's way. The messengers will come and prepare the way of the Lord. We hear that in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. In the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. And we know that these texts apply in in his history to John the Baptist as he comes to prepare the way of Jesus before him. So preparing the way is one purpose. The second one is refining and purifying the people of God. It focuses first on the sons of Levi, and then it focuses upon the people. The Levites are supposed to, at that point in time, once purified, will offer uh, offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Fire and soap are applied to them so that the dross is burned away and the impurities are washed away, and they are restoring the priesthood and also the people to true worship of God. And then God says he will be pleased with their offering. So they prepare the way, they refine and purify the people, and then they turn the hearts. They turn the hearts of the people. Children to their fathers and fathers to their children. I don't think this limited in in this text to just these people groups of children and fathers, but I think it expands to all of family. I think in some sense we may have a synecdoche going on here, which is a figure of speech that uh, one part is, is meant for the whole. So when it says children to parents, children to fathers, fathers to children, it's, it's mothers. It includes mothers. It includes husbands and wives. It includes uh, all relationships in the body of Christ and even neighbors. God is going to bring about reconciliation. The hearts of people will be torn toward each other, and they're going to look with favor upon one another. And finally, it says, once those three purposes are accomplished, I will draw near to you for judgment. After the people of God are purified, God will draw near to you for judgment. 1 Peter chapter 4.17 says, Judgment begins at the household of God. But what will that judgment be like? If it begins with us, what will it be like for those who do not follow God and do not walk in his ways? God says he's going to be a swift witness against covenant breakers, against sorcerers and adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who defraud hired workers of their wages, 
those who oppose the widow and the fatherless, and those who thrust aside the sojourners and deprive them of justice. And the last thing he says, and do not fear my name. God's judgment will be swift toward those who do not follow the covenant. The law was given to, to bless the people and to lead them into flourishing lives, but the law will also be used to judge people who do not follow the precepts and the order of the way of the Lord. What will the coming be like? Will it be reward or judgment? Will it be one coming or two? And this leads us into our season of Advent as we think about it. Malachi is sort of compressed. But when you read the other readings that we read this morning, if you read the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about the resurrection. And it talks about Christ as the first fruits. He's the first fruit. But then all the others in their order. And says it gives us a sense that the resurrection is going to have all kinds of steps involved. And so 1 Corinthians 15 is decompressing uh, the prophecy about resurrection. Matthew's text uh, talks about a king sitting upon his throne judging the nations, which is much more detailed than what Malachi presents. So you can see that these are being decompressed as you go forward in time and move on in history. And our passage tells us that the day of the Lord is coming and that two people groups essentially will be addressed. Evildoers will be reduced to stubble and ashes and God-fearers will experience God's blessing. Evildoers will be reduced to stubble and ashes. Neither root nor branch will remain, just total destruction. When I was a uh, freshman in college, when I went home for the summer, <clears throat> there was a fire that started in Baxter State Park, and it began to get out of control. Uh, the firefighters could not contain this fire. And uh, they enlisted anybody who was able, able-bodied, to come and help fight the fire, and so I enlisted as a, now a sophomore in college. And I went there in, I think it was June of 1976 uh, when I went there. And uh, they had their main firefighters who were at the main wall of the fire. The main wall was 150 to 200 feet high as far as the firewall. But behind that fire was moving very quickly. Behind the fire, there were a lot of places where there were embers smoking. And a lot of times, if they, after a bit, those embers would get into the roots and the roots would start to ignite. And all of a sudden, you have another fire behind the fire. And so people like me were given these metal uh, tanks. I, I don't know how many gallons of water were in them. They were pretty heavy. We had to fill them in all the streams and brooks that were along the way. And uh, we walked through the backwoods just looking for places where fires were starting up again so there wouldn't be these secondary fires. And when you think about that, what's going on in this text, it says branches are going to be burned, but also the roots. The roots are going to disintegrate. They're going to be all consumed. So there's total destruction going on. And when you come to this passage where it also says that the people of God, the fears of God, will walk upon the ashes, it's not that they're participating in the judgment. It's that they're coming to the judgment's aftermath where everything has already been destroyed and they're walking before the Lord. So you have the evildoers reduced to stubble and ashes, but you have the God-fearers shall experience three things and some beautiful images here. Healing rays of the son of righteousness. Healing is a word used in Jeremiah and other prophets of restoration of life and wholesomeness to the land and the people after their captivity in Babylon and the destruction that the Babylonians brought. Healing of the son of righteousness rising. Sort of the image, I'm not sure if you've ever seen the sun disk with wings. Uh, some of the ancient pictures of the ancient world, that's sort of the image that you have here. The sun rising with righteousness in its, in its wings, healing in its wings. 
The second one is freedom of release from the bondage and oppression of a sinful world. And you have the image of calves leaping out in the pasture. You let them out of their corral, and all of a sudden they start kicking up their heels. In cool days like we're entering into now, you might see that more often. In the sense of being enclosed and, and, and restrained, and all of a sudden you're let loose and you're just dancing. You're just kicking up your heels with great joy and delight. And the third one is vindication of God's justice. All things made right. All things made new. No more opposition. Fear from danger. Freedom to enjoy life at its fullness. And then Malachi ends with three verses. Three verses that don't fit the pattern of the rest of the book of a statement, questions, and then answer to the questions. But it's just three verses that are just laid out. It's sort of a summation of the book. And in this summation, there are three calls. There's a call to remembrance. Remember your covenants. Remember your vows. Remember your promises that you've made to Almighty God. And keep them. Remember them. Hold them in your heart and life. The second call is a call to readiness or preparation. Prepare for the great and awesome day of the Lord. The Lord is coming. And prepare. Make yourself ready. And the third call is a call to reconciliation in the community of faith. I said before, it's children to parents and fathers and fathers to children, but it's also husbands to wives and neighbor to neighbor and brother and sister in Christ to one another. A call to reconciliation. Three calls, remembrance, readiness, and reconciliation. And this sums up our book. And as it stands and is read generation after generation, this book is read among the people of God. It's always universally timeless and universal in space. It's an opportunity always and everywhere for the people of God to, who need this message, but also to heed this message, the message of the prophet, to remember our covenants, to be ready for his coming, and to be reconciled to one another in the body of Christ. And as we do that, we're prepared. As I finish my sermon first service, somebody's phone went off, and their, their phone alarm was sort of like a trumpet. <laughs> We need, to, we need to have that again because the trumpet needs to sound again. Whoa, it's like, okay, he's coming. Yes, he is. The trumpet's going to sound. But I think our call this morning is, are we ready? The Lord is coming. His messenger is coming. He has come, and he's coming again. And that's part of our creed. It's part of our belief. It's part of our theology. But it also needs to be part of our lives that we live out in readiness before the Lord, reconciling where we need reconciliation and remembering. And then... As we are such, we can be witnesses in the world on mission with a distinction between us and the world so that they also might be called to fear the Lord. Let's pray together. That wasn't quite, <laughs> that wasn't quite a, a trumpet. <laughs> Good try. Father, we offer you ourselves, and we ask you to bless us. We ask you to prepare us. By your Spirit, teach us what it means to remember our vows. Teach us what it means to be in readiness for our God. And teach us what it means to be reconciled one to another. And God, may we leap uh, like calves let loose from their stall. And may we also feel the sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings. And may we know your healing in our personal lives, our relationships, and God in our world. We need it so desperately. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, we pray. Amen.